Oh, hi. So you might have looked at your podcast app and seen that there's a new episode of Low Orbit available. And you might have said to yourself, what the hell? I subscribe to Denver Orbit, not Low Orbit. Well, calm down, my hot-headed friend. I have news for you. Denver Orbit is now Low Orbit. Let me explain. I started Denver Orbit almost three years ago with a couple of goals in mind. I wanted to try and build in myself a skill set as an audio producer and as a sound designer. But more importantly than that, I wanted to provide a showcase for the diverse abundance of talent that we have here in Denver. So I named the show Denver Orbit as kind of a shorthand, you know, explanation for that. And it was successful in that way. But here's the thing. People outside of Denver, well, they look at the name and they think, yeah, that's not for me. And I'm not just guessing that. By the way, the numbers bear this out. Most of the listeners to this show come from Denver. It would be nice to reach some people outside of the city, but I think the name is actually kind of a hindrance to that, unfortunately. So here's what we're going to do, you and I. We are going to fool them. We're going to keep providing a showcase for Denver talent and stories, but we're going to call it something else, something more accessible. We're going to call it Low Orbit. I think that'll do the trick, and I think... Everyone outside of Denver will get to hear some great literature and art and stories and all of that and be none the wiser. So nothing is really going to change that much. In fact, we'll be featuring more stories about Denver in general. But I promise those stories will be just as entertaining to everyone. All right, enough of explaining all this stuff. Let's get started on this new thing, the new version of the old thing, the new old ver whatever you get what I'm saying. One of the things about Denver is that some of the more interesting things that have happened here aren't necessarily on the surface, like in other cities. And we found one of these stories sitting just outside of Denver in Aurora. I'm talking about this boxy warehouse kind of looking building that has a bunch of local stores and restaurants and shops called the Stanley Marketplace. I always assumed it was some kind of old hangar or something related to the nearby and now gone Lowry Air Force Base and I assumed it was all part of the urban renewal that's happening there. And it is part of that urban renewal, and it was aviation-related, but its history is actually kind of more interesting than a successful urban renewal story. My friend Joe Corradlo kind of stumbled on that story on a recent visit there. Oh, and by the way, you might want headphones for this one. This story has been sort of a weird uh, obsession for the past month or two. So I'm out with my brother-in-law at uh, Stanley Marketplace out in uh, Aurora. And we're just getting coffee there. And down this one hall on the way to the bathroom are these four, uh, four placards. And it tells the history of the Stanley Marketplace. And what's wild about the Stanley Marketplace is that it was an ejection seat factory. I know ejection seats have to come from somewhere but the idea that there is a it's like a Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory thing you know you know where candy comes from but when you actually see where it's manufactured it's 
Schultz is a little comedic, but here's, here's a place that employed 1,300 people that made ejection seats. So my mind immediately went to the surrounding area where back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, there was nothing. So in that time, ejection seats were getting shot off in these fields. Whether your escape problem lies in the high supersonic or the extreme low speed end of the spectrum, there is no company more competent in helping you solve that problem than the Stanley Aviation Corporation, America's most experienced designer and builder of escape capsules and ejection seats for jet airplanes. Wait a minute. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's go back just a teeny little bit. Who was Robert Stanley? So Robert Stanley is just born in a very modest upbringing, uh, attended public school in Oklahoma, attended public school in Venice, California. As a young man, he attended Los Angeles Community College and then transferred to the California Institute of Technology uh, to study aeronautical engineering. So from the very beginning, this dude knew that he was into airplanes. And he lived during a time when aviation was this, no pun intended, but the sky was the limit. So it's 1931, Stanley's attending college, and he's also working part-time for the Douglas Aircraft Company. And he's working as a loftsman. So he's creating templates made out of wood and layering them on top of each other to create a smooth airflow over this new cargo plane that Douglas is working on called the DC-3, which is the first intercontinental airplane manufactured in the United States. This thing could carry about 6,000 pounds of cargo or people, um, about 32 passengers, and it took 17 hours to fly from California to New York. And that's with three refueling stops. So top speed was 207 miles an hour, and it had propellers on the outside, so it was pretty loud and not that fast. But this is a pretty monumental aircraft in the history of aviation because it opens up a large opportunity for aircraft to go long distances and service cities all over the United States and all over the world. So the DC-3 would also be used in World War II as a cargo plane and was also the, the plane that dropped the paratroopers on D-Day. So Stanley is working on the DC-3. He develops an idea for something called a reversible pitch airplane propeller blade. And no, I don't know what that is either. So these, these propeller blades, you could adjust the pitch of the propeller blade so it could grab more or less air which allowed the engine to use less fuel because if you wanted to go faster, you could increase the pitch of the propeller blade instead of just revving the motor faster. The U.S. military never wound up using this technology. However, and in kind of a strange twist of fate, in Stanley's memoir, he recounts the day where they got a German fighter plane and he took it up to fly it around. And he's like, wait a minute, this thing... This sort, of, this thing sort of feels familiar, and sure enough, he gets down and realized that the Germans had been using his patent. Anyway, Stanley finishes college, he joins the Navy, and completes his training. And in 1937, he's assigned to his first ship, which is stationed in Hawaii. He's assigned to the USS Lexington, 
and his first assignment is to be the chief cartographer for a search and rescue mission near the Howard Islands. Now, the pilot that they're looking for, you might have heard of her. It's Amelia Earhart. So it's his job to figure out how they're going to map the Earth to find Amelia. And he comes up with a procedure and they go out and do it. And unfortunately, you know, they don't find her. But the Navy adopts his cartography methods to be the standard operation procedure to find a downed pilot. So in between deployments, Robert Stanley's living in San Diego, California, and he's sharing a house with other Navy men. And in this time, he builds an aircraft in the basement of this house he's sharing with these guys. Now, this is where the story gets pretty wild because we start dipping into early applications of experimental technology. So through his aeronautical engineering experience, through the fact that he's a pilot, Stanley built a high-performance sailplane or glider he called the Nomad. So what's wild about the Nomad is that Stanley sourced the wings from the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. So the NACA supplied Stanley with experimental wing foils that combined two different shapes, one trailing edge and one leading edge that allowed air to move seamlessly over the wing. And specifically underneath the wing, the wing was shaped in a way to create lift. Now, if you don't recognize the, the NACA, you're not alone because in 1958, it was renamed NASA. So wrap your head around this. So Stanley's in the military as an airman when NASA is just loaning out parts to pe for people to play with. So Stanley's created the sailplane, this glider, and he's used parts that he's acquired from the earliest iterations of NASA. And he wants to go fly this in a soaring competition that's in central New York. This event is called the U.S. Nationals, and it's a competition of sailplanes. So gliders from all over the country are coming here to test out what these planes can do. The NACA, early NASA, is like, this is an excellent opportunity for us to show the public what we've got. Like, here's what the taxpayers have been paying for. Stanley's invention was touted as a demonstration of what cutting-edge airfoil technology and engineering can achieve. Awards are given based on what the aircraft can do. A silver badge is awarded when a pilot records an elevation gain of 1,000 feet, a flight of 31 miles, and five hours of continuous flight. Until this point, most requirements for the silver badge, or any badge for that matter, were completed during concurrent flights, which means that most people would just complete an elevation gain of 1,000 feet and then land, or 31 miles of flight and then land, or five hours of flight and then land. A lot was riding on Stanley. Thousands of spectators were in attendance. So Stanley's in the Nomad, He's getting towed to an elevation of a thousand feet and the tethers released. Unknown to the audience at this time, Stanley had not flown a single flight in the Nomad 
and had never in his life flown a glider. In the first flight of the Nomad, Stanley accomplished all three parts of the Silver Badge. On the next flight, Stanley piloted the Nomad to a controlled landing outside of Philadelphia, approximately 200 miles away. People are mobbing the plane when it lands. This is the biggest thing going on in central New York and upstate Pennsylvania. And someone steals his elevator. So an elevator is the device that's on your tail fin that controls whether you can pitch the plane up or down. So without that, you can't fly a plane. So for that year, Stanley's out of the competition. The next year, Stanley returns to the U.S. Nationals and blows everyone's mind. He's replaced the cruciform tail fin, so like just a standard tail fin that's in the shape of a cross with one that's in the shape of a V. So this is the first time we actually see a V-shaped tail fin used in history. The next day, Stanley broke the record that he himself established, this time with the assistance of a cumulonimbus cloud. So cumulonimbus clouds are towering clouds that can exceed thousands of feet in the air. Strong columns of wind blow air upwards in these clouds, creating conditions for hail, thunder, and lightning. So Stanley knew this from his experience as an airplane pilot and flew the Nomad into the cloud and rode the wind currents to a height of 17,284 feet. From this height, Stanley traveled over 250 miles to Bethesda, Maryland, where he landed the Nomad at the Congressional Country Club and was greeted with a hero's welcome. In addition to free drinks, Stanley was awarded the gold badge. So the Nomad's final flight occurred the next day as Stanley demonstrated aerobatics to a rapt crowd. He was doing barrel rolls. He was doing stalls. He's doing fancy turns. He's doing corkscrews. He's doing it all. And then the wing failed. As the Nomad spiraled to the ground, Stanley was able to successfully bail out. And despite the fate of the Nomad, Stanley went on to become president of the Soaring Society of America. This marks the first occurrence of Stanley bailing out of an aircraft that's rendered disabled. So to bail out of the Nomad in this circumstance, imagine a wing that's crumpled to the side, so it was bent up, and Stanley had to open up the canopy, uh, unlatch himself from the seat, and simply throw himself off the side of the plane. It may have been the first time that Stanley bailed out of a plane, but it certainly wasn't the last. He may not have talked about it much in his memoirs, but... Stanley was a guy that bailed out of four planes and it doesn't come up except for once he's out for, he's out for a test ride of this one plane and the plane begins to spin like not like a corkscrew, but like, like a spinning plate. And he realizes that he can't gain control of the plane. So he, he lifts up the canopy and lifts himself onto the wing and describes just walking off the edge of the wing. So let's just pause here for a minute and talk about what it means to actually bail out of an airplane, not eject from an airplane. We're going to talk about that later. What I'm talking about is bailing out of a propeller-driven airplane. Here's what I have in my head. It's World War II. We're looking at a pilot wearing a leather cap, goggles, a leather jacket. Our pilot is in a Spitfire or a Mustang or some other small fighter plane. He's engaged in an aerial battle. 
There's anti-aircraft fire exploding all around him. German fighter planes are zipping around, shooting at our guy. And one of the German planes fires his guns and scores some hits along the side of our guy's plane. The plane starts to stutter and smoke. The engine goes out and our pilot realizes he's got to get out of what is now a falling death trap. So he unlocks the canopy, he slides it open, and he pushes himself out of the plane. The plane falls away and he opens his chute, gliding safely down to the ground below. And again, thanks to movies and other things, this is how I always pictured it in my head. In reality, though, it's a lot harder than that. To successfully escape from a disabled aircraft, a pilot would have to overcome several difficult tasks. First is overcoming the G-forces. An incapacitated aircraft can wobble and spin or simply drop out of the sky. And these trajectories and accelerations can create massive forces on the pilot. These forces can keep a pilot from moving as the effective gravitational forces press them into the cockpit seat or against the walls of the craft. Assuming that a pilot has overcome the challenges associated with the G-forces, he's on to opening the canopy. This requires locating and freeing the latches that hold the canopy in place. Opening these latches, the canopy detaches or just opens, or in the cases that the latches are jammed or shot or disabled somehow, the pilot has to break the glass. So with the canopy open and the glass broken, the pilot would have to unlatch the straps that held him in place in the cockpit. With the straps undone and the canopy open, a pilot would then throw himself away from the plane. That's over the side of the cockpit and away from the plane. This is an important action to emphasize because just because you're no longer in the airplane doesn't mean that the plane can't hurt you. Bailing out of the cockpit meant that the pilot would have to throw his body over the side of the cockpit and in a direction so, so that he would fall away from the plane. A bailing out pilot needed to jump clear of the tail fin or risk being dismembered. A pilot also risked being crushed or struck by falling debris and the plane itself. Bailing out of the cockpit also posed the challenge of actually entering the airflow. If you've ever stuck your hand out of a car at 55 miles an hour, you'll remember how the wind can push your arm and hand back. A majority of aircraft in World War II had a top speed of around 400 miles. Most air combat occurred at those top speed, and so did the bailouts. If you were a bomber crew, you didn't have a canopy to throw yourself out of. A door at the bottom or side of the aircraft needed to be opened before you could escape. Hundreds of bomber crew would be lost over Europe during the war. Bomber crews had the highest mortality rate of any branch in World War II. They simply could not escape the falling aircraft. Keep in mind, we're still talking about propeller planes here. Getting out of a jet that way, for reasons that we'll discuss later, that's kind of impossible. But while we're on the subject of jet aircraft, as World War II came to an end, work on jet-powered aircraft ramped up, and... And this is where we get the X-1. On October 14th, 1947, at an elevation of 45,000 feet, Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier. That's 870 miles an hour. In subsequent flights, the X-1 was modified to sustain larger burn times and faster speeds, finally topping out at 1,600 miles per hour. 
This technology would go on to be used in the X2 and X15. The X-15 was flown at a top speed of 4,520 miles an hour and had a service ceiling of 67 miles above the Earth. During the X-15 program, 13 flights by eight pilots met the spaceflight criterion by exceeding an altitude of 50 miles, thus qualifying each pilot as an astronaut. So it's 1948. We've concluded the Second World War. We're at the dawn of the jet airplane age. We're also at the dawn of the Korean War. We're also about to start the Cold War. And at this point, ejection seats just don't exist. So we know how you had to get out of a disabled aircraft up to this point. But that speed, that wonderful, terrible speed, it presented a whole new set of problems. Remember that one of the big issues with bailing out of a propeller airplane was getting into the airflow. And as these planes more than doubled in speed, that became a much bigger issue. The problem with this airflow is that it's one thing just to jump into it, but the wind, the wind does push you. It does, it is a force you have to push against. And it's one thing when the airplane's going 400 miles an hour, but now with supersonic jets, the air that they have to push against is going six, seven, eight hundred miles an hour. So just the weight and the sheer velocity of that wind provides so much resistance that you can't physically get into that space. Consider the amount of experience and skill that's lost when a pilot dies. Those are skills that can only be gained through the thousands of hours spent flying and the cost of hundreds of hours of training. The X-1 project alone cost four test pilots their lives. Frankly, the Air Force needed a reliable way to ensure their pilots could safely escape a crippled aircraft to preserve their investment. Seeing this problem and having some firsthand experience with this issue led Stanley to form Stanley Aviation, the primary purpose of which was to design, test, engineer, and manufacture ejection seats. In 1949, Stanley Aviation was awarded a contract with the Office of Naval Research for the development of a downward ejection seat. This also marks the first step in their primary field of activity, the saving of human lives on disabled high-speed military aircraft. Due to the hazards posed by the tail fin of many early supersonic planes, a downward track ejection seat was developed. When activated, a panel below the pilot would break free and gravity would drop the pilot from the cockpit. Cables attached to the pilot's heels by stirrups would pull tight and keep the pilot's legs from flailing in the wind. Upon removal from the cockpit, a parachute would deploy and float the pilot safely to the ground. The dawn of ejection seat manufacturing solved and introduced many problems. On the bright side, pilots no longer had to fear being trapped inside an aircraft as it plummeted to the ground. On the not-so-bright side, ejecting from a craft near the speed of sound introduced a new set of brutal challenges. Early ejections at these high speeds, 600 to 1400 miles an hour, that's Mach 1 to Mach 2, that speed saw shoulder and leg dislocations. Pilots would be knocked unconscious by the rapid integration into the airflow. Lacerations and concussions from ejections through the canopy were not uncommon. Early rockets used to propel pilots out of the cockpits could cause compression fractures to the spine from the pulling of too many Gs. 
as the different iterations of aircraft could not accommodate a uniform solution to pilot safety. Stanley Aviation would introduce new technology to address these issues from their newly constructed factory in Aurora, Colorado. The new location worked to modify the existing Martin Baker ejection seat with new life-saving integrations. Retention devices would be installed in the seats. Tethers attached to the wrists and ankles would recoil tightly upon ejection to pull the arms and legs against the frame of the seat and keep them from flailing in the high-speed winds. Spikes were added to the tops of the ejection seats to puncture the canopy if it couldn't be opened. Ballistic charges were integrated into the sides of the canopy to blast the canopy free of the cockpit. Explosive ribbon was built into later canopies that would obliterate the glass microseconds before an airman rocketed through the debris. With a clear view of I-70 to the north, photographs show the test launches of experimental ejection seats with dummies and live test pilots visible as they fly through the air, making for an odd roadside attraction. The thing Stanley learned from developing these various systems would lead to Stanley's first and kind of strangest ejection system breakthrough, the Stanley Escape Capsule. The Stanley Escape Capsule looked like an egg or clamshell turned on its side. The capsule was a self-contained survival kit capable of floating on four inner tubes that inflated automatically from each corner. During a normal flight, the panels that made up the capsule were stacked on rails above the pilot's head, making him look like he was in a like a phone booth from the 70s. Two occasions typically called for the enclosure of the capsule. During flight, the capsule could be closed to preserve air pressure within the cabin or to protect the pilot from fumes or smoke that filled the cabin when early avionic vacuum tubes would overheat. A window in the front of the capsule allowed the pilot to operate the aircraft even when the capsule was fully closed, as he could see the forward instrument panel. Unfortunately, when the capsule closed, a spring mechanism would force the pilot's feet and legs towards his chest, essentially making him look like he was about to jump into a pool in a, in a cannonball shape. Squeezing the ejection trigger handle caused the canopy to separate from the plane. Cables would restrain the pilot's arms and legs, then followed quickly by the ignition of a rocket that launched the capsule 250 feet above the aircraft. As soon as the capsule cleared the aircraft, a draft parachute would deploy to stabilize the capsule as it fell towards the earth. But this meant that a pilot would sometimes be in freefall for over a minute before the main parachute deployed at 10,000 feet. In the last stage of descent, an airbag would fill underneath the capsule, thus creating a soft landing. In the making and testing of this capsule and other technologies, it's safe to say that things got a little, well, they got a little weird. In early tests, dummies were placed in the capsules. As the testing proceeded, anesthetized chimpanzees would be launched to prove the survivability of the capsule. On January 31st of 1962, the first live occupant was launched from a B-59 traveling 630 miles an hour at 20,000 feet. The 90-pound chimpanzee was unharmed in the test. Four weeks later, Edward James Murray would be the first human to eject in a Stanley capsule. Traveling 585 miles an hour at the time of ejection, Murray would emerge from the capsule saying, no sweat, I feel fine. Additional supersonic test ejections at 1,300 miles an hour and 40,000 feet would be conducted on test pilots, chimpanzees, and several bears. 
Bears were used because their spinal structure is very similar to humans. The first bear involved in testing survived ejection at 870 miles an hour. Another bear was from California, and his name was Smokey. On August 1st, 1962, Smokey, a 125-pound American black bear, was successfully hurled from a B-58 Hustler bomber going 1,060 miles an hour at 45,000 feet near Edwards Air Force Base in California. Several more bears involved in testing were borrowed from the Denver Zoo. The final series of tests occurred the week of August 20th, where 15 human test pilots were ejected at Mach 2 at 45,000 feet. The success of all of this would lead Stanley to develop his most popular and profitable ejection method, the Yankee Egress System. In response to recent emphasis on improvement in escape capability at zero speed and altitude, Stanley has evolved a truly revolutionary method of escape that uses neither an ejection seat nor a capsule, but pulls out just the man and his parachute and does it straight as an arrow at speeds below those at which conventional ejection seats go sour. The Yankee egress system consisted of a long, narrow rocket mounted behind the pilot that tethered to the upper segment of the seat. When activated, the straps of the five-point harness system tightened around the pilot. Then the rocket launched out of the cockpit, pulling the pilot with it. The simplicity of this system meant that it could be retrofitted to hundreds of models of aircraft. With the minimal amount of specialized equipment making up the system, the Yankee would be installed on every U.S. Air Force aircraft that didn't require a proprietary ejection system all the way into the late 80s. It's kind of hard to explain just what this system looks like in action, but try to imagine two small rockets physically pulling a pilot out of an airplane and then a parachute deploying once they're far enough away from that airplane. Or better yet, just go watch this video we've been hearing from. It's actually really interesting. I'll link to it in the show notes. Now, it's important to note that these ejection systems only exist in military aircraft. For various reasons, chief among which are cost and logistics, no one really makes an ejection system for civilian airplanes. And unfortunately, that actually matters to our story, because in 1977, when returning from a vacation in the Caribbean, the plane that Stanley was piloting hit severe wind shear on its final approach to the Fort Lauderdale airport. The crash would kill all aboard, including two of his sons, their wives, and a lifelong friend. The man who survived a career as a Navy pilot, a test pilot, a man that bailed out of four airplanes, and developed devices that saved hundreds of lives, died in a plane crash. Stanley may have died, but his legacy wasn't entirely forgotten. Upon his death, Stanley's wife Catherine donated the Nomad to the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. The Nomad is currently on display in Dulles Airport. This may seem like a kind of niche little thing, this idea of ejecting from or bailing out of a fighter plane. This technology actually had widespread applications outside of the military. The thing about ejection seats is that it's a safety measure for something that most pilots could incur in their professional lives. Like it's, you know, when you're driving a car, you have a seatbelt, you have airbags. The idea that, that a safety measure is then applied to an existing piece of technology becomes almost inevitable. As that canopy was falling to earth, 
there would inflate this airbag so that as the pilot would land, uh, he'd be oriented on his back. So as he hit the ground, that air bladder would dissipate that weight. So in the same way that when you get into a head-on collision, an airbag goes off in your car to keep you, to slow your body down. It's the same technology. And that kind of brings us to an end of our little story. Next time you go out to the Stanley Marketplace, maybe you'll see things a little differently. It must have been just a wonderful time to have an idea, you know? It's, it's your, you know, imagine your friends when you're a kid, you're setting off firecrackers in the back and in like an alley or setting off firecrackers. Here is that sort of boyish energy just channeled towards something that's as important as saving a human life. The idea of people solving a problem as simple as how do we get people out of this bad situation? The next time you're there, you can tell people the surrounding area was just people and dummies getting rocketed into the air. And you can imagine what it must have been like to see a factory of people all working for the common goal of saving people's lives. Joe Corradlo is a writer based here in Denver. So here's another thing about Denver that's not just sitting on the surface. We have a booming poetry scene. I mean, I knew there were great poets here, and we've featured some on the show, even, but I didn't know there was, like, a whole scene. And if you dig into this scene, if you if you explore it just a little bit, you're going to find Bryce Mayuro right there. Bryce reached out to me when the show was on hiatus, and he sent over this poem of his called Variations on a Complaint at a Restaurant. Variations on a complaint in a restaurant. I told the waiter that my soup was cold. And he threw it in my face and told me I sounded just like his ex-wife. I told the waiter that my soup was cold and he left. He returned with the shovel, began digging and digging through the tile floor of the restaurant into the dirt of the earth until he uncovered some kindling and two good sticks which he used to start a fire, and over the fire, he heated my soup, and it was love. But that strange kind of love, where someone creates a hard solution to show you the love they have for you. I said to the waiter that I knew he loved me before all that noise, that I was planning to tip him well and to tip him the same despite all of this. I told the waiter that my soup was cold, and the waiter said, no, the soup isn't cold. You were just eating the soup at the wrong time. And I said, fine, then I'll go back and eat the soup when you're not working. 
told the waiter that my soup was cold, and he sat down beside me, grabbed my spoon, and tasted it. Then he tasted it again. And again. And again, until he'd eaten the whole bowl of soup. And then I looked him in his kind, full eyes, and we both opened our mouths and said, Compersion. In the same song, at the same moment. I told the waiter that my soup was cold, and the waiter told me that he had just been to the doctor, and the doctor told him that he had a degenerative disease, and that his days alive on the planet were numbered, and I told the waiter that the soup is fine. It's fine. I told the waiter that my soup was cold, but it wasn't. He took the soup to the back and brought me out a fresh bowl of warm soup. He apologized profusely for the inconvenience and I sat and waited alone in the steam of my deceit for the soup to cool so that I could drink it. I told the waiter that my soup was cold and across the table Matt Clifford shook his head at me and said, no, 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 the soup isn't cold. You are too warm for the soup. Have you ever thought that a sloth doesn't see itself as slow moving, but rather revels in the joy that the world is moving so beautifully fast around it? No, you only think about yourself, said Matt Clifford. I told the waiter that my soup was cold, so he picked up the soup and threw it like a professional baseball fast pitch against the wall. And then his eyes, all kerosene and lit matchstick, he yelled, Anger is a secondary emotion! And I told him that doesn't bring my soup back. I told the waiter that my soup was cold, and I realized I was the waiter and that the soup was cold, and I had just been staring and staring at this poor customer for an eternity as they starved in my section, which I had most definitely neglected to properly take care of. I told the waiter that my soup was cold. I told myself that I deserved a better mirror. I told the truth in almost all of my bodies. I'm in all of these restaurants. And the soup is always goddamn cold. Bryce Mayuro is a poet and storyteller based here in Denver. He's also the poetry editor at Suspect Press Magazine. You can find his work at BryceMayuro.co. That's B-R-I-C-E-M-A-I-U-R-R-O.co. Bryce has been hosting a poetry series at the Mutiny Information Cafe, and he'll be having the one-year anniversary of that on March 4th at 7 p.m. So if you enjoyed this, you should go to that, because you're going to hear a lot of other great things there as well. 
And that's going to do it for today. If you've got an idea or a thought or a thing or a weird piece you've been working on or something you're just really interested in that you want to talk about, let me know about it. You can reach me at all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or use your handy email device. And you can reach out at denverorbit at gmail.com. Maybe someday I'll get a new email for this show. But for now, it kind of seems wisest to keep that one. Uh, anyway, as per usual, all the links to all of that stuff are in the show notes, and I'll see you again in a few weeks. <laughs> Fuck, what is wrong with me?